This week on The Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara, we are bringing you another installment of our summer book excerpt series. For those of you who haven't been listening this past month, don't worry, it's been busy, we're bringing back some of our amazing guests and airing a chapter or two of one of their books. After you hear their readings, you'll also hear their original episode to learn a bit more about them and their research interests. Now, if you're a regular listener, then you already know that I am not Kara Akabog, nor am I Chris Lynn. Don't worry, you'll get to hear their lovely voices later in the original interview. Some astute listeners, however, may recognize my voice from the occasional outro. My name is Caroline Owens. I'm a third-year graduate student at Emory University and a junior fellow with the Human Biology Association. While you haven't heard much from me, I have enjoyed working behind the scenes on the Sausage of Science for the past two years. My colleague Dr. Teresa Gildner and I have had the pleasure of working with Chris and Kara as editors and co-producers of The Sausage of Science. This week, we will be listening to Dr. David Geary read Chapter 1, Evolution of Fatherhood, from his book, Male, Female, The Evolution of Human Sex Differences. As you'll hear again later, Dr. Geary is Curator's Professor of Psychology at the University of Missouri-Columbia, with interest in learning, mathematical cognition, and as you may assume, the biological bases of human sex differences. We hope that you enjoy this excerpt. This is David Geary. I'm reading a bit out of Chapter 6, Evolution of Fatherhood, from an upcoming book, third edition of Male Female, The Evolution of Human Sex Differences. Men's investment in their children is one of the most remarkable features of the human family. Such investment might not seem unusual to readers with engaged fathers, But it is a riddle in terms of the broader evolutionary picture, given that male parenting is uncommon in mammals. When it is found, it is typically associated with shorter birth intervals between offspring or larger litters, as in carnivores, and is associated with reduced infanticide risk among primates. Under these conditions, both parents benefit from male parenting through an increase in the number of offspring that females can birth, and through higher offspring survival rates. These benefits also help to explain why the males of these species do not invest more in finding additional mates instead of parenting. Even so, male parenting in primates is generally found with social monogamy and isolated family groups. Human paternal investment, in contrast, occurs in large multi-male, multi-female communities, and often in the context of polygamous relationships. To be sure, There is male investment and offspring in some baboon species that live in male, multi-male, multi-female communities, but this is better explained by short-term protection against infanticide risk and pales in comparison with the long-term and extensive parenting provided by many men. The previous chapter argued that men's parental investment evolved from a gorilla-like family structure, perhaps initially as a defense against infanticide. In this scenario, the formation of multi-male, multi-female communities organized around male kin-based coalitions emerged more recently during our evolutionary history, but may still, still date back to Homo erectus. Whatever the evolutionary sequence, the combination of men's parents and families situated in large communities results in many added layers of complexity to human relationships and results in the potentials for humans to form a wide variety of marriage systems and family types. The focus here is on the cost-benefit trade-offs that influence when, with whom, and how much, if anything, 
men invest in their children. The first section is organized around the same basic evolutionary trade-offs that influence male parenting and other species, specifically benefits to offspring and cost to fathers. The second and third sections focus on sex differences and the level of parental investment and the many factors that influence the expression of men's parenting. Trade-offs of men's parenting. To fully understand the evolution and maintenance of men's parenting, it is important to consider the cost-benefit trade-offs shown in Table 4.1. First, men's parenting must have substantially reduced child mortality risk in ancestral environments or otherwise provided children with a socially competitive and therefore a reproductive advantage over their father-absent peers. The first part of this section examines the relationship between paternal investment and the physical and social well-being of children in existing populations and throughout history. Second, men's parenting would not have evolved or be maintained without reductions in the costs of lost mating opportunities and the risk of cuckoldry, that is, unwittingly raising the child of another man. These issues are addressed in the second part of this section. Benefits to Children Many books have been written about human parenting over the years, but few, if any of them, have touched on the core function of parenting, to keep children alive. This core purpose is sometimes hard to fathom, given the very low mortality rates among children in developed nations, but this situation is a very recent phenomenon. In a review of child mortality from ancient Greece to modern-day hunter-gatherer societies, T. Volk and Atkinson estimated that as many as half of all children died before reaching adolescence. These risks were often, but not always, substantially reduced by men's investment. Among the children who did survive, men's investment often contributed to their social competitiveness and thus improved their children's status in adulthood. So physical well-being. Given the low infant and child mortality rates in developed nations today, there is more information on the social and psychological correlates of paternal investment on fathers' contributions to their children's physical well-being. Edit, restate. Given the low infant and child mortality rates in developed nations today, there's more information on the social and psychological correlates of paternal investment than on fathers' contributions to their children's physical well-being. To estimate the importance of this investment in riskier environments, we can examine the relation between paternal factors such as occupation and childhood mortality in pre-industrial Europe and the United States and in extant developing and traditional societies. Even when paternal factors correlate with child mortality risk, we cannot be certain that the relation is causal, because men with beneficial qualities are often married to women with beneficial qualities, and it may be the joint contributions that lower mortality risk. Moreover, other kin often contribute to the raising of children, especially grandparents, which further complicates the evaluation of the specific contributions of fathers. Despite this and other potential confounds, paternal investment does appear to lower infant and child mortality risks in some human groups, but the magnitude of this effect likely varies from one context to the next, such as whether or not kin can invest in children. 
So mortality in traditional societies. Kay Hill in Hurtado's extensive ethnography and demography of the Ache, a hunter-gatherer society in Paraguay, provides one of the most extensive assessments of the relation between paternal investment and child mortality rates in a traditional society. For the forest-dwelling Ache, one out of three children died before reaching the age of 15 years, with highly significant differences for father-present and father-absent children. Father-absence, due to death or divorce, tripled the probability of child death because of illness, and doubled the risk of being killed by other Ache men or being kidnapped by other groups, presumably to be killed or sold into slavery. Overall, father absence at any point prior to the child's 15th birthday resulted in a mortality rate of more than 45% as compared with a mortality rate of about 20% for children whose father resided with them until their 15th birthday. Death because of sickness is related in part to the adequacy of a child's diet, and in many traditional societies, paternal investment and provisioning provides an important component of this diet. The Ache share hunting proceeds among all members of the group, and thus fathers do not directly provision their children. Nevertheless, the children of skilled hunters have lower mortality rates than do the children of less skilled hunters. This is also true in other in at least some other hunter-gatherer societies. It appears that these children are better treated than the children of less skilled hunters. K. Hill and Kaplan indicated that better treatment involves a greater tolerance of food begging by the children of good hunters, a greater willingness of band members to stay in one location to to nurse the ill child of a good hunter, and greater alloparenting of these children. The Ache, however, are not generally willing to invest in the well-being of unrelated children and, as noted, often killed children whose father had died or left the group. They did this because they did not have the resources to raise these children. Across a variety of other cultures, Seer and Mace found no consistent relationship between fathers' investment and mortality risk for infants and young children. Sometimes fathers mattered, and sometimes they did not. Across five traditional cultures, Winking and Girving found that father desertion resulted in a modest increase in mortality for children under five years of age. But here, too, these risks varied from one one group to the next. With the death of the father or following a divorce, other kin, often maternal grandmothers, were often able to compensate for the lost paternal investment. Even when a father's skill at provisioning his family is related to child mortality risks, a causal link cannot be made. This is because culturally successful men tend to marry women who have qualities that will improve the well-being of their children, and it may be these mother's contributions that have the strongest effects on child mortality. For the Hadza, successful hunters have more surviving children than less successful hunters, but successful hunters tend to have wives who are more efficient foragers than other women. Protection from other men may be one area in which kin might not be able to compensate for the loss of a father. As with the Ache, the presence of a stepfather associated with increased mortality, although it's still uncommon, in young children, and is associated with ongoing levels of conflict and poor health, as well as increased risk of sexual abuse in many other contexts. In a unique brain imaging study, 
it was revealed that men had distinct patterns of brain activation when viewing a threatened infant whom they imagined was their own as compared with an unknown infant. The corresponding brain regions support threat detection, aggression, and acting on the environment, in keeping with the argument that men have an implicit protective response when their children are threatened. Mortality in developing nations. In developing and pre-industrial societies, fathers often make the difference between whether a child survives to adulthood or not. There is a consistent relationship between marital status, family income, and infant and child mortality rates in developing countries throughout the world. The United Nations report was stated, both the univariate and multivariate results show that mortality of children is raised if the woman is not currently married, if she is married more than once, or if she is in a polygamous union. Overall, it appears there is a strong direct association between stable family relationships and low levels of child mortality, although direction of causation cannot be inferred from the data. Indonesian children of divorced parents have about a 12% higher mortality rate than the children of monogamously married couples. The same relation was found in 11 of the 14 developing nations surveyed, but it's possible that the death of a child increases divorce rates rather than paternal absence increasing mortality risk. Compared to divorce, death of the father is generally associated with higher infant and child mortality rates, suggesting that father absence independent of maternal characteristics directly contributes to these risks. Same pattern is evident in pre-industrial Europe, where families living in urban areas were often separated from the kin networks that contribute to children's well-being in traditional contexts. During the 19th and early 20th centuries in Sweden, infant mortality rates were 1.5 to 3 times higher for children born to unmarried mothers than for children born to married couples. The same was true in the Netherlands from 1885 to 1940. The direct importance of fathers is confirmed by the finding that the mortality rates of these, quote, illegitimate children was lower if the, provider, if the father provided economic support to the child and the mother, and by the finding of higher mortality of, quote, legitimate children if the father died. A relationship between paternal provisioning and infant and child mortality risks has, in fact, been found repeatedly throughout pre-industrial and industrializing Europe and the United States. Reed's analysis of mortality risks in early 20th century England and Wales suggested that, quote, a child's chance of survival was strongly contingent on who its parents were, or more precisely, what job its father had. The conclusion was based on a strong relationship between socioeconomic status, defined entirely by father's occupation and mortality risks. In comparison with children whose fathers were unskilled laborers, the infants of professional fathers had a 54% lower mortality rate. The children of unemployed fathers, in contrast, had a 38% higher mortality rate than did the children of unskilled laborers. Controlling for SES, environment, maternal age, and other factors, children of working mothers had a 34% higher mortality rate than did the children whose mothers did not work outside of the home. If care was provided to these children while the mother worked, the child had a 17% higher mortality rate than 
than did children whose mothers were primarily uh, were the primary caretakers. These effects appear to have been related to whether the infant was consistently breastfed. 1900 France, 7% of breastfed infants died as compared to 37% of bottle-fed infants. Paternal employment was important because it often increased breastfeeding by allowing the mother to stay home with the child rather than work herself. In an extensive analysis of birth, death, and demographic records from 18th century Berlin, Schultz found a strong correlation between infant and child mortality rates and SES that was partly defined by paternal occupation. Infant mortality rates were about 10% for aristocrats, but more than 40% for laborers and unskilled technicians. A senior official of the welfare authorities observed in 1769 that among poor weavers of Friedrichstag, 75 out of every 100 children born died before they reached the age of 12 years. During the 1437, 1438, and 1449, and 1450 Black Plague epidemics in Florence, Italy, child mortality rates increased five to tenfold and varied inversely with SES. A similar relation is found in some traditional societies today. In many contexts, the resources provided by fathers also allowed the family to live in healthier environments, enjoy a more stable food supply, sometimes hire servants, all of which contributed to the relationship between SES and infant and child mortality rates in industrializing Europe. Well, let me tell you about our guest today. Please do, because uh, I know he's coming to your campus to give a talk, so I'm a little bit more in the dark about what's going on. Yeah, so as, as you know, we often have guest speakers here for a variety of lecture series, one of which um, is called the Alabama Lectures on Life's Evolution. It's a speaker series I've been involved in for about, well, for the whole 10 years I've been here. It's a 12-year-old speaker series, and so our speakers represent a variety of disciplines, and today's speaker is Dr. David Geary, who is a cognitive developmental and evolutionary psychologist with interest in mathematical cognition and learning, as well as the biological bases of sex differences. And he is coming to us. Uh, he's a curator's professor of psychological sciences at the University of Missouri, Columbia. So this is a little bit different for some of our listeners, but I want to throw out the caveat because I'm aware of some people in our discipline having some strong feelings about evolutionary psychology. Kara might be one of them. I am not. <laughs> I was trained in evolutionary psychology as well as human biology. And so this has always been a bit of a source point for me, mainly because I think we need to judge the science and not the scientist or the discipline. So maybe I can ask, what led to you asking Dr. Greary to be in the Allele series, or were you the one who initiated it? I did not. I was not. And in fact, although I am familiar with his work, I'm not as familiar with it as I am some other folks. So uh, he was actually invited by Farat Solyu. Farat is an educational neuroscientist. So I'm going to bring him in now rather than make him wait out there and, and chit-chat anymore. We have a lot of questions. He's had a long and storied career, and so we have many things we can ask him about and take up lots of time. 
So let me just start. We already did a little bit of an introduction and told the listeners who you are. And I sent you some questions, but I'm going to start with the second one because I think that'll set up a little bit about you and, and you can fill in some of the context. But you're the sole author of four books, uh-huh. Children's Mathematical Development from 94, uh, Male, Female, The Evolution of Human Sex Differences from 98, which is the one I believe has been reprinted in a, a new edition recently. Yeah. The Origin of Mind, Evolution of Brain, Cognition, and General Intelligence from 2005, and Evolution of Vulnerability, Implications for Sex Differences in Health and Development from 2015, which you're going to be speaking about tonight. So my question for you is to ask if you could connect the dots. How does your interest in children's math development relate to the evolution of sex differences in cognition? (laughs) Well, great question doesn't actually relate that much. And there's some overlap that, that I can talk about a bit. In graduate school, I went to study developmental neuropsych, uh, hemispheric specialization sorts of things. I became interested in potential sex differences in changes in that during uh, puberty and was going to do my dissertation on that topic. But we're doing kids and had to draw blood and so ran into all sorts of human subject sorts of issues. So I basically had to drop that dissertation. And during the same time, I was working with another person who's a quantitative psychologist. He was studying individual differences in um, mathematics. So we're using uh, statistics to kind of model people's problem-solving processes for complex arithmetic. So I just switched and did my dissertation on that. So I kind of got on the math line of it, but maintained my sex differences interest. Being uh, more cautious back then and practical, I thought, well, I'll stick with the kind of standard math cognition development type of work until I get uh, tenure. And then Mm -hmm. I take on evolutionary types of issues and sex differences types of issues, which is what I did. And then, but I kept up the math work. In fact, one of my first evolution articles and arguments was on evolutionary and cultural influences on kids' mathematical development and academic development, arguing that we should make a distinction between evolved areas of cognition, and that would include things like language, for example, as as a kind of easy to understand example, and non-evolved or culture-specific types of skills, which would include things like reading and writing. Now, these are kind of built upon the evolved language system, but it requires specific educational interventions for them to occur. And making this distinction has very important kind of educational implications to it. And, and so that's kind of how I fuse the evolution of math stuff. And I still do a little bit of that fusing, but most of my sex differences work is, is separate. Hmm. So given that you said you moved into some of the sex difference stuff and evolution mm-hmm. post-tenure, you recognize there's some controversy there. Yeah. So I, I wonder what your experience has been with that and why you have decided to, to write in that area and to advocate for evolution and education. Right, so I went into a straight kind of cognitive development uh, program in graduate school, but I took breath courses in comparative psych and physiological psych and uh, read a book on behavioral ecology Mm. during the comparative stuff. And I really liked it. I thought, well, this is the way to go. Mm -hmm. But there weren't many many jobs in that area, so I kind of stuck with the mainstream sorts of thing. Okay, well, I'm going to, learn as much as I can while I'm doing my standard developmental cognition sorts of things. And then 
once I get tenure, I, I will kind of move in and try to integrate or mm -hmm. expand my work. In sex differences, I actually did become interested in that in graduate school as well. As I said, I was going to do my dissertation on it. You know, thankfully, I'm pretty socially insensitive. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I didn't really think too much about the controversy in terms of I thought, well, okay, you have this social, political sort of, I was aware of that. But I thought, well, when it comes to science, certainly that's kind of a protected area there. There wouldn't be issues. I, I was wrong. But, yeah. but you know, that was my, my kind of naive uh, belief about it. So while, while I was an assistant professor doing all this kind of standard math stuff, I, mm -hmm. I was reading as much as I could on the side and basically getting reading lists from some of the evolutionary anthropologists in my, uh, at, at, at Mizzou. Perfect. Mm -hmm. If I could, and this is totally not a question on the list, but this is always what happens. Given what you look at, especially the, the mathematical differences and sex differences, how do you take into account culture and just how children are raised? We, we've seen numbers of studies saying boys are encouraged to be better at math and science and girls are much more directed towards the English and humanities. How do you parse that up between actual cognition and then this cultural influence directing you know, the sexes one way versus the other? Yeah, good question. To, to really answer those questions, you need kind of large scale data sets looking at countries that vary in the extent to which women have economic, political, and other types of, uh, of rights. And I have collaborated on those ty types of studies, and, and in fact, I'm still working on those as well. And, and we have looked at sex differences in STEM-related areas. And one way to address that question is to look at countries that are socially and politically gender equal. So the Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and so forth, kind of have the most women and girl-friendly political social system in the world, probably anywhere, anytime in human history. And if the cultural influences are really critical, then sex differences in cognition, occupational interests, and so forth should be smaller in those countries than in other countries. And this, this has actually been, been studied by a number of firms. And we, we published a, an article on it just uh, last year, and we're, we're doing, working on a follow-up right now. But in any case, the bottom line is for uh, a lot of STEM-related types of things and a lot of other areas, the sex differences actually get bigger in the gender-equal country. So as things get richer, easier, safer, people have more opportunities to express their individual preference. And as they express their individual preferences, uh, we find more occupational segregation. So I think, Chris, if you're okay with that, I'm going to go to the fourth one, because I, this kind of gets into, at least this leads, I think, well into it. So we read one of your articles, a 2017 article in the Quarterly Review of Biology, and the title of the article is Evolution of Human Sex-Specific Cognitive Vulnerabilities. And in it, and this is much more for the audience, because now that I know my uncle is listening to the show, I totally want to define terms <laughs> as much as possible. And you talk about folk cognition, as well as folk psychology and folk physics, as these being different ways of, of, of cognition. What do these mean, and what differences might there be between males and females? Right. So folk abilities are basically universal, evolved forms of cognition. So folk psychology would be 
language, um, inferences about the underlying thoughts and feelings of the individual, what we just call theory of mind. Folk physics would be things like the ability to navigate, but also, um, you know, uh, predicting the tra trajectory of movement of things and so yeah. forth. These are all universal things. Humans are quite sophisticated at them. Doesn't require any formal schooling and so forth. So taking an evolutionary approach, if there's any kind of evolved vulnerabilities, they're gonna show up in the folk stuff. Something like reading and writing, it would be kind of indirect through, through, through the language system. So it's either the evolved taxonomy of things versus talk. I was thinking you were gonna ask him something about Finland. She works in <laughs> Very, very different. Although I do look at energetics, and so I was really excited to see your, uh... That was kind of the start of that article was talking about energetic stressors. And so when people are energetically stressed, whether due to higher activity or fewer resources, different things that are not necessary to survival basically take a back seat. And so I quite enjoyed that. Right. Yeah. That's a central argument mm -hmm. is that areas where due to competition, evolutionary competition or mate choices or whatever. So a peacock's tail, for example, for survival, but certainly is um, necessary to get dates, mm. put all sorts of energy and nutrients and other sorts of things into it, but it comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. So if you're stressed, energetically stressed, um, either due to nutritional problems or infectious disease or whatever, those extra resources are going to go into maintaining the body and keeping you alive and relatively healthy, and it's going to show up in the tail. So the exaggerated traits then uh, provide advantage, but they also become more sensitive to environmental stressors. And so they're, they're a good barometer of how things are going with the individual. And so in that article that you mentioned in book and some other ones argued that, well, we take the same basic argument and apply it to people. If we look at areas where women have advantages, language, theory of mind, reading facial expressions and so forth, then when they're undergoing some type of energetic or other stressor or toxin exposure, then they should take bigger hits in those areas. Mm -hmm. And if we look at areas where men do better, like some people's facial abilities, we should see the opposite. So digging down a little bit deeper into that, it seems like there are a lot of testable directions for research in, in the paper we read, and it sounds like the book and, and other articles. So what do you see as the next step, say, for anthropologists? So we're in the field looking at these aspects of human biology and, and other and, and evolutionary models. What can anthropologists take toward understanding this? And I'll paraphrase the conclusion. Your model suggests that mitochondrial energy and oxidative stress are the biological limits mm -hmm. on these sex-specific traits. So what's the important work that needs to be done? And then also, why is it important? Right. So I um, wrote an article for a uh, uh, tropical diseases journal, um, plus uh, neglected tropical diseases, taking some, some of the basic points in my book and saying, well... You know, a lot of these populations in developed countries are um, undergoing nutritional stress, either chronic or for the term, a um, lot of um, chronic infections. There's a lot of 
stressors in their life and, and so social stressors as well, especially if they're, they're lower, uh, you have, have income issues. And those populations have been studied by physical anthropologists for decades. Mm-hmm. And they often look at things like skeletal height, you know, fat reserves and other types of things, which are, are useful. And, and I, I review a lot of that in the book and show that, you know, under this chronic stress, boys' height is more compromised than girls, particularly during adolescence, mm-hmm. okay, which makes perfect sense. But but also point out point out that you know a lot of other things are going on during that time. There, there's periods of rapid brain development, you know, gray matter development and and other sorts of things that occur at, at different times and at different ages for boys and girls. There's a lot of cognitive changes going on, so forth. So to really fully understand the implications of chronic stress, disease, uh, chronic disease, nutritional problems. Uh, you have to look at more than skeletal sorts of things, and you can expand uh, the assessments to include some of the you know language, theory mm-hmm. of mind, spatial abilities, some of the sort, sorts of things that, that I talk about mm-hmm. in the book. Since you now know that I work with energetics, one of the, the, the areas I found really interesting was the anorexia nervosa uh, portion of that paper. And one thing I thought that was kind of interesting was that women with anorexia nervosa perform better than healthy women on visuospatial tests, uh, where that's much more like kind of the male trait, quote unquote, if you will. Um, Could you explain how that might come about, especially because if they're performing better, going back to that energetic kind of hypothesis, they're putting energy that they don't have towards this specific form of cognition. Right. So there have been uh, quite a few studies now looking at uh, what, what I would call folk psychology, so language, theory of mind, reading, mm-hmm. vocal intonation, and so forth, in um, individuals, mostly women with anorexia, so they're chronic um, for, for nutrition and, and you know, of course, uh, calorie restriction. And they really take a hit on these folk psychology domains. One study, did give one particular type of visual spatial, and they, they're, and, and, and they had, the women with anorexia did better than, than other women, which was a surprise. But they stated that probably they're not actually better at visual spatial skills, but that particular test, people who tend to be a little obsessive compulsive, mm. details mixed in, they focus on the details and miss the big picture, tend to do well on it. And a lot of women with anorexia kind of those personality traits. So that's probably what's going on. And then I guess related to that, have you or anyone you know looked into the opposite condition, obesity? You know, there's still, it's an eating disorder in many, in many ways, or even an addictive disorder. Uh, looking at differences in cognition between males and females if they're obese. That is a great, a great question. As, as you know, I touch on it a little bit in the article with... Mm-hmm. Diabetes, with yeah. And you know there, there there's glucose issues there, and you know there may be there's a little bit of a hint of maybe there are some sex specific deficits, but unfortunately in this literature and in fact most of the other literatures, sex differences aren't reported, mm. are statistically removed as nuisances, and so it's like well we just control for sex and then they don't report the data separately for males and females. And even the studies that do include uh, a cognitive assessment and report sex differences, 
they tend not to use tests that would be very sensitive to subtle mm-hmm. deficits. And, and so some, some of the things I talk about it in the book and some of the other articles are saying, well, if, if we want to do more sensitive assessments, we need to give tests that, are, that show bigger sex differences. And we need mm-hmm. to compare the results with respect to same-sex individuals. Well, there you go, everybody. We just gave a dissertation topic to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you, you sort of touched on this, but I was also curious about possible sex differences in anxiety and depression. I know that there are epidemiological data indicating gender differences in the U.S. So are these gender differences actually sex differences that you would consider universals, or are they cultural syndromes? In other, in other words, do they fit in this model as well? Yeah, that, that would be a standard kind of psychological definition of vulnerability, vulnerability to some uh, psychological disorder. The uh, sex differences in depression, if one, one, there's none in childhood, but once you hit adolescence, it's about a two to one ratio in terms of extreme problems. And um, it's probably the same for anxiety and, and looks to be universal. The anxiety is really the flip side of risk-taking. So guys engage in more risk-taking sorts of things than girls do, and they hurt or kill themselves as a result of it uh, at much higher rates, starting, you know, actually starting from when they're kids. And the anxiety kind of puts a break on that, but you're still going to get kind of, you know, if you look at the whole distribution, you're going to get more kind of extreme on that than men are. So I, I see that more as a normal sex difference and the disorder part is just kind of the right tail mm. of that. That makes sense. <clears throat> so I guess this is gonna loop us back to kind of the early part where we talk about education and evolution education. So you served on the National Board of Directors for the Institute of Education Science during the Bush and early Obama administrations. Could you tell us a little bit about that, what you did and kind of what your experience was like and maybe the difference between those two administrations? Sure. Yeah, so I, I, I served on the, uh, yeah, the, the National Board of Advisors for the Institute of um, Education Sciences and um, actually of the Nat- National Mathematics Advisory Panel, both focused on um, trying to improve um, educational outcome in, in the U.S. The uh, Institute for Educational Sciences is an attempt to put more scientific rigor into educational research, to do more randomized controlled trials, more direct experiments, and and so forth. So it's really trying to increase uh, the basic research base of that. And it's modeled directly after the um, National Institute. It's slow progress, but it it, it is starting to make a difference. It's really kind of improving kind of the research foundation in, in education. The uh, national board just kind of uh, oversaw budgets, research portfolios, and then a whole bunch of other sorts of things like the um, National Assessment of Educational Progress. We'd hear a lot about, and uh, IES actually funds a lot of uh, clinical trials of different educational interventions to see if they work or don't work or when they work, when they don't work. And, and, and so forth. So it's really the, the research arm of the Department of Education. 
And did you see any difference in how the administrations operated between Bush and Obama? Well, yeah, yeah, that, uh, that's a good question. Uh, the biggest thing that changed was the name. <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> was No Child Left Behind for Bush, and then Obama came up with a different name. Uh, but the basic policies and goals were, I would say, 90% or so. Over mm. They were, you know, it, everybody wants to improve. Mm -hmm. And there's only so many ways that you can do it. And so there, there, there were some changes in terms of educational philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, Obama was more, people were more traditional, kind of more education like a humanity type of thing, more qualitative work. Bush was more interested in the NIH scientific model, but most of it stays. I know at a lot of our conferences, we have folks wondering about the generalizability and impact of the science that we all do and how policymakers find out about it and how, how that, that translation process happened. So I'm curious how you got involved in that and how you made that jump. So, I mean, it, it wasn't something I sought out. So, so the, the board has 15 members, if I remember correctly, eight from um just basic you know your standard academic types in psychology or mathematics or economics or education whatever it is and then seven who would be more policy oriented so so they have a mix of folks on it which mm -hmm. which is good so somebody nominated me for i'm not sure who mm -hmm. and i was you know so yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> so like like other service positions. I was about to say, that's the, the typical academic response to service. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and then I was on the National Map for two years and it was a attempt to shore up the, uh, the algebra and algebra preparedness for U.S. Mm. Well, we thank you for doing that service yeah. as, as we all get thanked when we do those, those onerous tasks that are, that are very necessary nonetheless. Yep, I, I learned a lot. Um, Never be on a government panel that's going to write a report. <laughs> I can uh, yeah. So um, you mentioned that these several projects that you have going on are, are ongoing. Is there anything new on the horizon that you want to tell folks about? Yeah, so um, we're always doing the, uh, the math stuff. We've just looked at preschool risk factors, trying to identify the basic problems that will put kids behind already in math at the beginning of first grade and I, I think we've identified that the, the project I think was pretty successful now we have to figure out how to fix it which we're working on we haven't mm -hmm. out how to do that um, the other big issue in math is the um, uh, is algebra and mm -hmm. so we're in the middle of a project trying to look at variation and algebraic outcomes and looking at non-cognitive cognitive, cognitive factors, background factors, et cetera, looking at that. And so it'll, it'll be a few years before we have a handle on that. Okay, so I have to throw in um, a straw man question as a parent of teenage boys who one of whom struggles with math mm -hmm. and having conversations with a lot of parents and our kids mm -hmm. who wonder about the relative importance of algebra and some of the math classes they're they're taking versus right. say learning how to I don't know fix a car or use their computer better or some practical skills uh -huh. why 
are these math classes important? What are we telling our kids? Right. Well, if you want to uh, fix a car now, you have, you have to learn how to use a fair amount of technology. And um, to get through that training, you have to know some math. You're probably not going to use directly all of the algebra and geometry that you might take. But while you're learning that, you're reinforcing even more basic skills, fractions, arithmetic, uh, your sense of number, and so forth. So it's really, you know, you're learning new stuff, but it's also a great built-in practice to solidify what you already do know. So even if the surface structure of it doesn't look like it's directly applicable, um, you're, you're, you're getting other benefits uh, from it. And the, um, you know, there, there's n numerous long-term studies now looking at math competencies and um, uh, employability, productivity on the job, wages, the ability to get promoted to a manager. If you're a manager, you need to have some math skills. You need to schedule, you need to allocate time, you need to figure out sales peaks and all of that sort of thing. If you don't have those skills, you're stuck. You're not going anywhere. Mm. Even in areas where you, it may not be obvious that it's important. Mm. Now, if I can get my kids to listen to the podcast, we're all good. <laughs> Just have it playing during dinner. It'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, so we always like to end on a bit of a fun question, just to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, we're wondering what you do to maintain balance in your life. What do you watch, read, or listen to, or hobbies you might have? Yeah, yeah, good question. So I, I read a couple of books recently on economic history. Hmm. It was uh, pretty, pretty interesting. I've been doing Taekwondo for 23 years this month. Mm. Wow. So that, uh, I, I do that a couple times a week and have friends in there. And I like to hit and kick people. So, <laughs> so, it's, a, so it's, a, it's a real plus. So yeah. I've done Muay Thai before, but I'm a power lifter now. So, <laughs> so I do that, hang out with the family. So is there, uh, are you recruiting grad students? Is there anything that you'd like to promote? How should people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more? Yeah, I'm actually not recruiting grad students right now. I, I, I have one new grad student to be starting on the math project and, and paid off of our um, grants. Uh, I do have a web page through the university and it's kind of reasonably up to date. We have an MU math study web page. I don't do social media because um, I just don't have time for it. I've done a number of podcasts and kind of uh, video interviews, but of course I don't have links up, yet, <laughs> but, but maybe I, I should do that. Yeah. Well, that's what we're here for yeah. to promote all that. Well, I am on social media. So if you want to learn more about what I'm doing, I'm Chris. I'm at Chris underscore L Y and Kara is too. I am on Twitter at Kara Akabak. And we've been the Sausage of Science. We want to thank you for listening. Thank you, David, for thank joining you. us today. All right. Thank, thank you for having me. Make sure you share and like this podcast because that's how my uncle found out about it. So get your uncles to and listen it to actually, podcast. It actually works if your it uncle does. rates us on okay. iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.